0: Changing culture of a company overnight is possible by the senior leaders role modeling in a different way. It's the the questions that they ask, the reactions that they have, the things they prioritize, that changes a company overnight.
1: You're listening to The Breakdown with me, Chris Clearfield. The Breakdown is a podcast where we connect with business owners and experts to hear their perspectives on this crazy, complex world. I'm your host and fellow learner, and I'm glad you're here. Today's guest is Diane Chadwick-Jones. Diane is a retired safety executive who retired about a year ago from BP, where she capped off a 30-year career as the person in charge of creating a positive safety culture in the organization. That's a role that she's had for about the last decade before her retirement. And if you start lining up those dates, you'll see that she took over that role just a few weeks before the Deepwater Horizon accident happened. Now, people who have read Meltdown, regular listeners, people who follow my work might know that the Deepwater Horizon accident was a big turning point for me personally. It's what set me on this path of really thinking in terms of complexity and change and creating cultures that can support operations in this very complex world. And more importantly, I think, seeing safety as one of the areas that is very affected by complexity. Before Deepwater, I was really thinking about complexity in the context of financial systems and global markets. But it wasn't until the Deepwater Horizon accident happened that I really expanded my view and saw what an impact complexity had on the wider world. Now, Diane and I don't talk about the Deepwater Horizon accident, and that's very intentional. But we do get a chance to talk about so many other things. Uh, Her perspective that she's developed in some of the really impactful things that she's done to create a very different approach to safety, influence, and positive change in the broader world, and the work that she's still advancing today. So I'm really delighted to talk with her, and we talk about what it means to be a systems thinker. We talk about incentives, the role of incentives, how they backfire, and we talk about what it means to really create a culture. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Diane. I'm very, very grateful to have her on the podcast and to have her share her wisdom with me and with you, my dear audience. Now a quick programming note, the podcast team and I are taking a bit of a summer hiatus after this episode. We've just gone through the launch of my new course on solving impossible problems, and we're gonna take some time to get clear about exactly what our strategy is here and how we're going to move forward. So I look forward to landing again in your ears in the fall, and as always, from me and my fabulous team, thank you, be well, and stay curious. Diane, welcome. Can you maybe just start by introducing yourself, saying who you are, saying the kind of work that you do, and and we'll start there.
0: Oh, thanks, Chris. It's great to be talking to you today. So I joined BP about 30 years ago. I was a safety and operations leader for many years. And then about 15 years ago, I started working more specifically on safety culture and systems thinking. And so then about this time last year, I decided to retire from BP. Left BP um, in December, and since then, I've been working with a number of companies and and supporting a number of companies and, and and learning even more. And so today, it's just great to have a chat with you about you know our mutual learnings, actually, because we you and I have been interacting for quite some time. And yes, um, and thank you for all your. The interesting things that you've been brought to me that have advanced my understanding.
1: Well, my pleasure, and it's 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 an honor to um, it's an honor to talk to you today, and it's an honor to 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 know you and to I mean to bring things forward that advance people's understanding and have an impact. That's kind of that's my whole mission. So I appreciate your your saying that. Man, you use you use two phrases that really stood out to me in that intro, and one was systems thinking, and the other was either culture or safety culture, kind of depending on how we want to take that. So I I just want to start by asking systems thinking. You know, that is a word that gets bandied around a lot. For a while, I tried to use it as a way to connect with people about the work that I was doing. But what I found was no one is not willing to think of themselves as a systems thinker. So it wasn't kind of, it wasn't a great differentiator to to engage with people because I feel like a lot of people hold themselves out as systems thinkers, but but I'm not even sure if I have a good if I could define that for you. How do you think about systems thinking and being a systems thinker?
0: Well, I'd like to keep it simple. I think that's the important thing, is that you know we bandy around these terms and then nobody knows what they mean. But really. What, where I'm coming from is that if we think about organizational effectiveness and all the different things that are needed for organizational effectiveness, you know the culture, the, the processes, the procedures, the training of the people, all of that is one big system. And if we then go and things don't go quite to plan as we expect, and we go, huh, oh, well, that's the the fault of the person that did that job whether it was that project or a particular task and we say oh well people are the problem and what we're missing is the understanding is that people are just one part of a very large and very complex set of interactions and that is what i'm talking about when we're talking about systems thinking but we also could say the word complexity i know some people would disagree with that but that's okay because if we Kind of force ourselves into categories, and we force us talk about this jargon. It's not helping anybody. Right. So it's just this description about that an organisation is a it ha, is, has many many components, and those components have many difficult to predict interactions, and of course people find that incredibly overwhelming. Oh my god, there's all these difficult to to, to, all these components. How do I control this? How do I control this? How do I control people? But instead, think of it as well, hang on, you know, you've got your policies, you've got the the culture that the senior leaders actually communicate and role model, you've got the, the procedures, you've got the training of people, you've got your equipment. If, depending on what kind of company you are. And, and so that, when you think about it, you do understand, you've got your procurement process, you've got your human resource, resources processes, that those are all the components of the system. So really people who are kind of quite senior in a company can actually have an overview on what are all the different components of that system. And, then in, and in that sense, they are the owners of the system, right. because what they can do is they make the decision on what gets resourced and what doesn't get resourced, what gets prioritized and what doesn't get prioritized. So that's how I hold it. And I do try and not use jargon, and I do try and to simplify it with saying, well, it's the components of, of what your company is made up of. And, and that, I hope that that helps people.
1: And you said something in there that that I think is a is a something that resonates with me, which is when you think in terms of control, how do you control a system? Then the system can be very very overwhelming because you know any system that has a, a shred of complexity, you can nudge it, but you can't control it. Control is a really hard thing to apply to a complex system because of the unintended interactions and because you don't exactly understand how your inputs are going to result in outputs. But you can work with a a complex system or you can work with it in a way that is, if instead of control, you use learning as the lens, then I think as a leader, you can be much more effective at really thinking about how to translate the things you want to an ensemble of action, stances, procedures that, that really can scale instead of, trying to control people and and kind of keeping them in a very narrow channel. I wonder if that that kind of reaction resonates with you.
0: Well, that, that totally resonates with me. And when we explain this to people, they are overwhelmed, okay? Because the way that we usually manage companies is we see that people are the problem and that they are something to be controlled. And that what we need to do is we need to ha- put in consequences so that if they don't do the right thing, then we will punish them, rather than realizing that the work environment, the workplace setup, has many, many more times influence than people's right. own in, inside of situation. And that's so that's on one side that that control feels simple and easy and the thing that we've always done. And then on the other side, when we talk about a learning organisation, people are thinking of all the times that learning has failed in their organisation, where they have had all this effort in learning from what may or may not have have gone to plan. And that they think, well, that's never going to work. But what you and I are talking about when we discuss a a learning organisation is that when something doesn't go quite to plan, the, the leaders are going, oh, well, OK, well, well tell me more about that. And, and they're very supportive because they understand that there are so many different components interacting and that there are unintended consequences of all those different uh, or unexpected interactions. right? And so they go, oh, well, you know, and how can I help you with this? And that, and then what yeah, that does is that builds a culture of care and listening and fixing of things. And that's what we are talking about a learning organization. We're not talking about massive spreadsheets or documents. While in the control organization, what we have is that, that everything is enormously bureaucratic. And so we have masses of lagging and leading indicators trying to explain what's going on or not rather than and so that those are all even leading indicators of output measures so there's this enormous bureaucracy around output measures rather than the focus on the inputs which is the quality of the work a lot of this is actually about quality and looking for because of course, in the control organization, everything's perfect. That the procedures and processes and training and everything is perfect, and that people are the problem. While in the learning organization, we know there's always going to be a difference between what we think is going on and what's actually going on, because there's everything keeps on changing all the time. So, so I, so it does very much resonate with me. But there's terror in people's hearts when we talk about a learning organization because they've tried so many times to do a learning organization and it's ended up as bureauc- bureaucracy as well
1: well and, and and i think that there is something in there that is i think really deep and I, I guess you know one of the things i think a lot about is when i'm working with a leader or a leadership team or or thinking about change on the scale of an organization one of the things I think a lot about is, well, what's happening right now and what are the ways in which the mm-hmm. behavior we're seeing is very, is adaptive, right? What are the ways the behavior we're seeing is useful? And to be clear, I think control-based behaviors can be very, very useful. I think in a, a simple system or even a complicated system to use the kind of Kinevin framework, control is a very useful thing to reach for. But as the system becomes more dynamic, as it becomes more complex, we start to see more and more cost of control because it gets – the sort of idea on paper gets more and more divorced from the reality of the world. The kind of idealized operator becomes more and more divorced from the operator of the world. And I think to me that – like one of the things that that I find really interesting is how many norms there are in the world that – push leaders and organizations into a control mindset. So, you know, if you th- even think about and I'm I'm curious how, if reflecting on your own career if this would show up, but you know, leaders get people get promoted for solving problems and and they often get promoted for coming up with answers to solve problems. And so, that's very much and you and I have talked about this in in other times, but you know, that very much harkens back to this model where Leadership's job is to know the answer and kind of propagate it through the organization in a way that's you know that's tied back and measurable, versus an idea that leadership's job is to you know not just ask the right questions and set priorities, but also to remove barriers from effective work from the people who are actually doing the work. And I, I think those are two very very different models. And I think that there are a lot of f- sort of social forces that, that push the default modern organizational culture to a control-based culture. And I'm curious if you, I'm, I don't know, I could be overstretching over here, but I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Well, I don't, so a lot of what we do in general across any industry is based on the regulator. And the regulators are always quite far behind. We all know that. Okay. And I'm not talking about any specific regulator. I'm just talking about regulation in general. And, but on the other hand, I do agree that we do need to have a certain level of, of compliance. And, and, and so we do need to have a foundation of some of, of compliance and standards. I think that's really important. But what I, when you were talking about it, I was thinking about good to great and, and, uh, Jim. Oh, was it Jim O'Brien? Collins. Jim, Jim Collins, excuse me. Good, good to Great and Built to Last and how, how the the Mighty Fall and How They Rise Up Again. Those are, 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 are paraphrasing his books. And it makes me think of the level five leader. And so it's it's almost as if the regulator is, you know it, in a very in a well-meaning way, is is pushing companies in in one direction, and then the management thinking knows that um, that the leaders who are the most successful leaders are the ones who are the enabling leaders, who are the listening leaders, who are the ones who are are trying to in, improve how the whole company works, rather than being a a, a command and control figurehead. So you know, these ideas are are not. New ideas, but it it feels as if it's just taking us a long time to get there, because there are so many different forces in different companies to keep those views. Now, I mean, there's a lot of work on this. I mean, Harvard, you know, and and the work of David Burnham, they've looked at the concept of the influencing leader, who instead of um, takes. The position of you know take, being the problem solver and fixing everything, or and then or being a leader who pushes onto people is the, the the interesting leader. Then asks the question: Well, you know, on one hand, you know, we, we're in this dilemma. And, you know, we we need to, to meet this sales target, but on the other hand, um, there is a, a fundamental problem with our resourcing. Let's just go with that, and then invites the ho- the whole team to actually discuss it not losing their status yes because okay? there's some issues there's some concerns about you know not knowing the answer as you've just said as you the expectations in the process you would always know the answer but if but if they take on that problem onto their own shoulders they will never really get the best answer because they're not using right. everything in the, the team and and in fact the work um i think was from harvard was from i think the starving nation study who that found that there was a, a special a particular type of leader that was most effective and it was this kind of leader who by using paradox and complexity and dilemmas and and in and speaking with their teams were finding out through the the, the bigger picture on what was the problem and then therefore having a better idea of what were the potential answers. So, I, I, I mean, I like very much where you're talking about this, you know, c- control versus versus learning. And it, but it does feel that there's a lot of things that get in the way because you and I encounter many companies that although they may think that this is the right way forward structurally, either there's expectations that leaders need to be a very controlling figurehead or, and and that is what you need to be, or that there are just very deeply held views that people are the problem or that there's competition between different groups within a company for what is the predominant culture of the company. And that then stops it. And, And those three I've seen actually in the past six months where where I, I, I see, and I think, oh, you know, it's all different industries, all different kind of companies, all very huge companies. And so there's, there's things that get in the way of moving forward to what you know, has been shown. To be more and more, much more helpful. I mean, you know, we, we can't have an organizational culture or a safety culture without having a learning culture. And this is what my mentor, Tom McDaniel, keeps on telling me. You know, the, these are learning culture that kind of scares people. So it, I think it's for people like you and I to hold the hands of leaders and say, look, this doesn't need to be so difficult.
1: And I think that that's such a good way of of putting it. And I think that one of the things that that, as I have, I'll say deepened my practice in this in this area in my ability to help leaders work on and and engage with transformational change, really engage with the shift from a control-based culture to a I'll call it a curiosity based culture because that's one of my favorite words. You know, the 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 uncertainty is real and and the and the fear is real and I feel like and as you just said like there is no one culture within an organization. Very often I'm working with a team who is trying to catalyze some kind of change and you know, they are starting to crystallize their view that they need to be a different kind of organization, but that doesn't necessarily, you know, cascade out to the operating businesses. It doesn't necessarily cascade out to even their, their leadership who has put them in a role to try and drive these kinds of changes or invite these kinds of changes in the organization. So that ability to, as a leader, to show up in an organization that is control oriented and to say, hey, we're trying to do this thing. We don't really know how to do it. I mean, that is a, is a very big step. And I think that that's a step that, that needs not just scaffolding not just a framework to think about, but also interpersonal support, just, you know, hey, um, you know, it doesn't have to look like, you know, the leader lies down on the couch and and we, you know, we do, we do psychoanalysis, but it, you know, it's, it's helpful. Like what I, I was working with a leader a couple of weeks ago and, you know, we, we had kind of for the second or third time come up with an idea of a way that his team could try to engage a little bit differently. And I realized like, well, this is easy for us to talk about, you know, in this room, but but what's what's the barrier to doing this? You know, why hasn't this happened yet? And then that led to a really um, kind of fruitful discussion about some of the things he was worried about, how the idea would be received by other people, you know, um, would he be making enemies in the organization? And, and it was just, I want to say I'm kind of consistently humbled by the opportunity to support folks in this part of their journey because it is such, it is such an interpersonal journey and it is hard. It is a hard journey to go from somebody who, you know, particularly if you're an engineer, if you're a technical expert, if, you know, so much of your career has been getting a problem in your sights and, you know, figuring out how to solve it and then solving it and then moving on, this is a different kind of way of working. That was a lot of talking by me.
0: It is it is very different. And, because you're asking people to make some really big switches, and I, how I hold it is, I just think of it as skills building. That's all I, I do. I think of it as skills building. That, that all these years, these leaders have been conditioned and trained to be
1: a particular and rewarded, way. yeah,
0: and rewarded, and so they've been they've been trained and rewarded to hold people to account. They've been trained and rewarded, as you said, to be the best problem solver. But as they get more and more senior, the problems are massive and it's just not good enough or not, or it doesn't, they do not come up with the best answers if they do it all by themselves. So what I've been working on is to say, well, let's just start with one thing and that is how you respond when things don't go to plan, but that's because that's the key. That is the key because that opens up the the ability to learn and to find out the reality, of what really is going on. And they go, oh, okay, well this is difficult. And then, and then I, um, the people around them, I also explain this as well because of course they need. When you talk about scaffolding, that's what made me think because you've, you've got these very senior leaders in organisations. Who really want to do something different and and as it you're absolutely right, it's very risky and they and and they're thinking, well, how do I get a critical mass mass of understanding? So they've got their team around them who also understands this. And then what they do is they practice it and get it a bit wrong and then practice it and get it a bit wrong. But the role modeling, the effect of their role modeling, is much more than you would possibly imagine. I mean, it is, changing culture of a company overnight is possible by the senior leaders role modeling in a different way. It's the the questions that they ask, the reactions that they have, the things they prioritize, that changes a company overnight. And I know you and I have both seen that, and I'm sure that many people are listening to this podcast has actually seen it and they've seen it go both ways yes. they've seen it go bad in the wrong direction and in a good direction but we all know that that can happen that change culture can change in 24 hours just by how the most senior leaders um role model and and that is it is you know quite it is a powerful thing to understand because rather than control and bureaucracy and thinking that we put it need to put in a new um, management framework or that right. we need a, n- a new vision for the company or whatever it is that p- people think they need to do. It's just what they do because everyone's watching them. You know, everyone's watching every single thing they do, everything right. they say, they're being watched and then everyone's then copying them and doing what it is that they're being asked to do by the senior leaders, so that I I, I find you know quite a, a a helpful thought because when people come to me they the, all they want is a training program for the front line to learn them you know to learn them to you know the, to, for the for the for the employees who actually do the work I want to learn them to pay more attention I want to learn them to try harder I want to learn them to do this and I'm like well you know no amount of learning uh, you know uh, uh, sheep dipping. Your front line is going to improve the way that the work is set up and the priorities of the organization. But having a conversation with you about how you set priorities and how you allocate resources and what is accepted and not accepted in your real company, well, that's a totally different conversation. That's how you change your company.
1: Well, and, and I want I want to say one thing about that. So if you're a senior leader and you're listening to this and you're thinking like, Gosh, that's great, but that is a tall order for me to show up and change the way I'm I'm operating overnight. The thing I want to emphasize is you don't have to get it perfect. Like yeah. you 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 want to demonstrate that you're moving and thinking in the right direction, but if somebody comes to you with bad news and you yell at them, then a little bit later go and apologize to them publicly and say, "Hey, I'm sorry that my reaction was so strong." You know, it was not what I wanted to hear, but I'm really glad you brought it to me. Thank you. Or if you avoid yelling at them, like, yes, that's even better. But but the idea is just you – the thing that you need to be is just aware of your behavior. You don't have to get it right. You just have to realize if you're in a place where you're operating from this place of mutual learning or if you're not. If you're in a place where you're trying to push control in the organization, just notice when that's happening and – Use that as an opportunity to reflect and to model the fact that you too are making mistakes.
0: Oh, absolutely! And, and you know, we all have these knee-jerk reactions, and this is definitely something that needs to be practiced. And over time, people just have less relapses because it's just more and more practiced on on how to do this. Yes. And so I agree that you can pull it back by you know if, if you if you do have a, 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 st- a strong reaction, well, you can go and apologize and that's absolutely fine. Uh, what I've noticed and in fact I was talking to somebody a senior leader in a, a, a large energy company yesterday about this and what he was uh, and he's doing this okay so he's he's working on this and he's working on this with um, with his team. Is that um, some people are, have just been so conditioned to jump to conclusions when things don't go to plan, and and kind of create some sort of story about well and well it's so and so's fault because oh uh, I don't know they oh they um, they they refused overtime last week so that means that they're no longer they're not committed and it's their fault that the things are not going well. And, and he was saying, well, but what he can do then is he can also go to people afterwards and say, hey, you know, th- th- we are trying to learn here. And and of course, when something doesn't happen, it, it just looks like the last people who were involved in the, the issue were the, the problem. But really, you know, what we all know right. is that there's a very long fuse there's A very long fuse, and, the, and that individual on the day is the last centimetre of the very, very long fuse, and of the, all the many things that combined over the many, many months. And you know, if we, if we just jump and to a conclusion and think it's that particular person who was had a let's just say, for the sake of argument, a lack of commitment, then we are forgetting all the other things that led to this not working out and it's almost as if that last person's like um like a goalkeeper in a, a, right. in, a in a soccer game and and so and there's lots and lots of great catches and lots of lots of risk and lots of system weak lots of weaknesses in the way things are set up and then and then of course the, the goalie doesn't catch it and then we all blame the goalie but we know from looking at the football game, we know there are lots and lots of passes and tackles and other things that went on there. So.
1: And it's an interest. It's, it's an interesting, I'm interrupting because it's an interesting analogy, not least because the differences too, you know, a football game, you see very clearly the moments before the progression of, 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 of the shot on goal in, uh, I mean, in an organization of any size, you know, those previous moments may be weeks ahead of time, months ahead of time, years ahead of time. And so you've got the same system effects, but it's the the kind of the the dynamics and the structure are hidden. And they're I mean, you know, football's a very visible game. Everybody sits high up and looks yeah. down at the pitch, right?
0: Well it it may be, but really the the if we take the analogy even further Yeah, you're right. It's almost as if I'm the team manager and I'm just looking at the scoreboard and it's a goalless draw because there's all those great catches that are happening, right? And so I'm not actually seeing anything because I'm quite far away. So I'm just looking, I'm um, not even listening to it on the radio. I'm just watching the scoreboard from far, far away because I'm many, many, many layers uh, away from what's actually going on. And then I'm, and then I'm saying, oh, that goalie is rubbish. Or even, and we all know this happens. Goalless draw. Oh, everything's perfect. Everything perfect. Nothing's happening. There's nothing wrong with our organisation. Everything's brilliant. Right. And then, and then what we do is we wait for failure to learn. But you know, we all understand that there are so many good cap catches happening every day. And so that that actually going and. Asking people, well, what you know, what's making the work difficult, or you know, what what are you worrying about? Those those kind of things make a big difference. And so, when we're talking about how leaders can create a learning culture, that's a huge part of it. It's the at the start is the responding in a supportive way to bad news, but the next piece is about inviting people to speak up about issues and fixing them. and Again, I know people find this, you know, really overwhelming. Well, oh, we've got thousands and thousands of things going on in our company, and my answer is is to say, well, what are the most critical things? You know, the, the things that if that if they're not working, then that is going to be a big issue, and focus on those rather than you know, doing what I've seen some companies do with uh, continuous improvement, is you know do do Six Sigma projects on uh, occupancy of meeting rooms, of course, pre-COVID, I think all that effort, we should be doing Six Sigma projects on what is going on with this particular planning issue, That, or um, even better, a, a procurement problem. Why is it that our procurement process is not working? Let's follow through our procurement process and understand why these essential pieces of equipment are not getting through to us and then causing us to lose a lot of money.
1: Right, right. Or there's so many good things to do uh, uh, a rigorous process on. Why yeah. are we continually overestimating the the profitability of, you know, whatever, a new asset, a a, a new business line, uh, you know, an, an expansion? Um, yeah, that's that's a very, that's an interesting point. And that sort of goes, well, there's, there's just something there, too. And that kind of connects back to the, I mean, improvement feeder might be a way of, mm-hmm. of, of putting that. But I want to leave that. I want to, uh, I want to ask you, I want to compare notes on something and I'll just put the word out there and I'm, I'm curious what it will bring up for you. The word incentives. Can you talk about incentives?
0: So we all know that incentives distort what actually happens. There are unexpected consequences of incentives and or unintended consequences of incentives so we know that for example when we talk about incentives and safety that if you're rewarding the absence of something because that is how it's measured the absence of incidents the absence of spills the absence of near misses that this can cause a distortion in the reporting of injuries or spills or near misses or whatever you're you're measuring Uh, equally if you're having an incentive for for example reporting 10 safety conversations a month what happens is that people do two safety conversations during the month and then on the eighth day on the on the last day of the month they do eight safety conversations with their colleagues because That is what they're expected to do. So you have a huge quality issue. So on one hand, if you have incentives for the presence of of reporting, I'm talking in the context of safety, then you have a a quality problem. If you have incentives for safety outputs, then you have a a reporting problem because, and this has been seen in quite a few studies, that that there will just be less injuries or incidents reported. And in fact, it goes as far as to say that now that quite a few papers have been published mm-hmm. from different industries, so from construction, from oil and gas, and from manufacturing, that show that when there is a target zero program for contractors, which is there's incentives there, including being recon be contracted okay because it's part of the the uh, contracting request for proposal of of decision making of the client that then there are there are actually more injuries and incidents and deaths on those sites the ones that are difficult to hide and that is a a terrible thing to imagine that something that is intended to be positive to have a target zero that nobody gets hurt or that no bad things happen leads to even worse outcomes. So I, I think there's, um, I think in in the context in the context of safety, incentives are something that are distorting and and need to be managed. Incentives need to be managed very very carefully. But why did you ask me?
1: Well, because I think incentives are very interesting, and I think that. Um, They are a tool that a lot of leaders reach for. And I do think that they have lots of unintended consequences. I was curious about your take on it. You know, the the one thing that I want to explore for just a minute is the idea of what is the purpose of incentives? Because you said, well, the purpose of incentives is to create safety, you know, to create safety. And and I wonder about that. And not. I don't want to be too cynical because, again, I, I view what people do is, as being adaptive and, and kind of working for them in some way. But, but I think that one of the roles of incentives is to translate from, uh, again, from uncertainty to control. I think incentives give leaders a way to take something that is, complex systems level and and has a lot of uncertainty and translate it to something that is recordable, spreadsheetable, trackable, and and therefore gives a sense of control, even though it may not, it might make the outcomes worse, it makes the leaders feel more comfortable that they have a process in place. Do you Mm -hmm. think that's too cynical?
0: I I suppose I've got two comments on this. I mean, it's it's quite traditional and thus it ever was in terms of this idea of incentivization. But the literature says differently. The literature actually says that incentives do work if you're doing, like you give them immediately, it's something to do with the team and it's a non-complex task. It's a non-complex task. Incentives don't work if they come a year later and they're to do with Quite complex. Uh, the kind of work that the, the pe- people in any industry are doing, or you know, really quite difficult kind of jobs, that 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 does not work at all. Okay, so that so the first thing is that the whole the whole theory and practice of, of incentives is now proven to be invalid. Okay, so that's the, the first thing, and the the I'm not holding it cynically though because i see i see it more to do with always there's this enormous gap between practice and and what has been proven okay there's always a gap that and so for example forced ranking from general electric everybody thought that was amazing but we all know now that that causes a lot of trouble but it took quite quite a lot of time for it for the the knowledge to catch up on that And so I feel more with incentives that it's just a bit more about catching up. However, I do have an even more negative view than you do. Not about cynicism, but something else about why incentives continue. Okay, and that's because there is a self-reinforcing, self-reinforcing loop on incentives. So let's just say it's safety just for the sake of argument. Okay, but it could be productivity. So what happens is that people work to those targets, okay? They work to those targets and it makes it look like it's working. But they're doing whatever they can to reach those targets so that they get the bonus. Eventually, and you know we've seen this with some companies, it, it all falls apart. Um, yeah, you know, I think um, some banks have have come across these, you know, incentives. For Wells Fargo would be an example right. of their incentives on the number of bank bank accounts that people would open, and they would be cross-selling bank accounts, and it all falls apart. So we we do see that, but for quite some time, it looks like the incentives are really successful, and that is. I, so I feel there's a sort of, kind of a reinforcing loop on incentives that means that they stay as a, as in management theory, as a established piece of how we manage companies. Yeah. But there's lots of evidence out there to show that from academic researchers that show that they don't work, but um, or that they have distortions. Now, incentives for quality of work, that could work. That could, but again, that's kind of relatively early days in terms of that research. What you and I encounter is that when we we talk to people within companies, they just say, well, we'll just look, I just have to have the data. I just have to have data, be asked for data. I've just got to do it. So I've got to create some leading indicators and, and create a cottage industry of measurement, which doesn't help anybody. But right. that's what the executive directors and the non-executive directors say we have to have. And so yeah, I suppose if there was a, you know, one thing that I'd be really keen on doing is, is advancing that, the understanding of that and about what, what, what could we do differently. But it, it's, I would go in a different direction. I would say, well, what, actually, what is the, the, what is the learning culture of our company? Because it's, that's pretty easy to measure. And you measure it without it touching anybody. Okay, so the one that we talked about before is just you know seeing how leaders respond when things don't go to plan or when there's bad news. I mean that's a away a tell. Okay, so you know straight away in a company if it's a, if it's a learning culture or a control comp- culture. But also every company has a some sort of people engagement survey. Most companies have these. I mean, not everyone, but most do. And straight away, when you run that, using, with quite a bit of granularity, so to like group subgroups of about 100 people, you can tell very quickly where are the places which are, where things are, people are learning, there's a level of speak up, because there's standard questions. And every single survey has, I can speak up without... Uh, repercussions Um, my line manager listens to me I trust the leaders of this company I think there's a care in this company people listen to me when I make suggestions I mean you know those are just generic questions that at least one or two of the ones that I've mentioned are, are there so that is a very clear way of understanding and when you have that then I'm not saying we should link that to bonuses. That's not the point I'm making.
1: Because you'll 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 get the you'll get the same effects. All we're talking about. Yeah.
0: Sorted again. But but it does help you understand what is going on in those subgroups. And then if you want to talk about a bonus for business effectiveness, then you, you can have somebody who's an arbitrator and say, well those people engagement scores are just one part of it. And then other right. components are another part of it rather than people managing to the numbers and, and twisting right. themselves in knots managing to numbers and, and then realizing and and then it all falling apart because it's right. impossible to sustain.
1: That's great. Thank you. Uh, I want to, we're, we're kind of coming to the close um, mm-hmm. and I mean, you and I, as, as we have, we, I mean, we could talk for, we could talk for hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I want to close by thinking about, um, culture and I, I want to put to you a question that one of the things I've been doing is kind of forming a little chain between these podcasts I do and asking a previous guest what questions they have for a subsequent guest, And so I asked a, a guy, um, whose name is Jason Barnwell and he is, um, an associate general counsel at Microsoft and he works on innovation. He helps Microsoft's legal department create a culture of of catalyze a culture of innovation really. And so the question he had for you was how do you know when your culture is broken? How do you know when your culture has a real problem and 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 you need to to think about fixing it? I mean particularly if you're a leader who's embedded in an organization maybe has been a long time in that organization. Um, how, do you, how do you think about that?
0: Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't go to the data. Okay, that's the first thing. I, let's not kind of turn things into a data monster conversation. Instead, I'd be um, looking at the difference between what the front lines say, the supervisors say, and the people above. And when you have, and there's always going to be differences, okay. So that's not that's not the issue, but um, and usually the senior leaders think that things are a lot more positive than the than the front line. Um, that's for sure. So that would be the way to look at it. Is you see the difference with the massive differences, then you know that there are pretty big issues with your culture because if the supervisors say one thing and the people who are doing the work, the day-to-day work say another thing and it's totally different, then you know you know that there is a there is a problem. But what I have seen a few times is where and this is and this is when it's really bad. Okay. This is when when it's really, really, really bad. Is when there's a flip, and the front line are so terrified, of or so scared of telling the truth, is that they tell you everything's wonderful, and the supervisors and the regional managers tell you that things are in a terrible state, and that is when you know that you are in the pits,
1: mm.
0: and that is the, that those are the, that is the pits. So if the first point is the the the. the the kind of the, the, the distance of the amount of negativity between the, the different levels is is it really big okay that's the first one and the second one if the front line are saying everything's amazing then you know it's really broken and I, I remember somebody who was uh, working on process safety um, going, he, he was a regulator who's telling me he went to a company and he told me that um, he went and sat with some technicians and had a chat with them, and they told him that everything was fine, everything was amazing. And I went, "Hey, you do understand that that means that it's really bad." And he went, "Oh, this is a long time ago, but it." Uh-huh. But I said, "You need to go back and you need to speak with all the different levels because i I'm I'm telling you now." I think that you will find that some some of the supervisors will say, you know, we've got a problem here. But but it's all again. It goes back to control. Control brings fear. Fear leads to concealment of issues, which then means you can't fix them.
1: Well, and that's and that's you know that is one of the things. If I it, it, sometimes I'm asked to sum up. Meltdown in you know one sentence, which is Mm -hmm. is hard to do because you write you know you write a book because we wrote a book because we we had a lot lot of thoughts. But the one sentence that you know put setting aside the, the, the 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 kind of importance of complexity, which I think more and more people are directly connecting with these days, particularly during a pandemic when when it is clear how linked things are in unexpected ways. But setting that aside for a moment. You know, I think about this this problem of complexity at, at the center of it, in many ways, is just a question of information flows. Like do you have information flowing from the people that are closest to operations to the people who are making decisions about how to manage resource and and kind of um, steer those operations? And when you look at somebody like Wells Fargo, who you mentioned, you know, one of the big problems with Wells Fargo was that they were punishing people who were speaking up. They were firing them, they were blacklisting them from the industry. And that to me is just such the, the kind of, the example at the extreme of when you have problems about uh, information flow, when you have problems about people at different levels uh, pushing responsibility to the problem only at levels below them. So I, I'm going I'm to bring us to a close, but I want to ask one of my upcoming guests is, uh, his name is John Gertner, and he is a writer who's written a book about innovation at Bell Labs called The Idea Factory. And I'm curious, what um, what would you, what would you, if, you know, putting on your your kind of, well, just your... Your, your listener hat or your person hat. What would you want to know from somebody like John?
0: Yeah, well, I've seen a lot of case studies around the agile process with innovation and how that makes quite a lot of difference in terms of testing things. And I wondered whether that at all resonated with him or not i mean my other question would be well how do you manage the balance between of the people that you have the people who are the real out of the box thinkers who may be seen as heretics but in about 10 years time they'll be seen as reformers uh-huh. how do you actually manage those as well because that's a really interesting thought for me because in every company we have people who are the activists, the activists for change, okay? And it takes a while for, for an activist to be seen as a reformer and then an influencer, and they finally become an influencer. An influencer is a positive thing, right? Right. So you start being a heretic, then you're an activist, then you're a reformer, then you're an influencer. And um, I'm very interested to understand the path. You know, in Bell Labs, how do they nurture the people with those radical ideas.
1: Yes. And in, and in some sense, I think that's such a perfect question because that's so much of what Bell Labs did, right? I mean, so much of what Bell Labs did was took these people that had these crazy, non-commercializable ideas and and gave them space to develop them. And then, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, they changed the world, right? I mean, well, yeah.
0: They're the establishment now.
1: <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. That, I love that. Thank you for that.
0: Okay, well, thank you.
1: Well, and uh, Diane, thanks for, for coming in and chatting with me. I mean, it's always lovely to talk with you. And yeah, I, I appreciate you and, and the work that you do. And I appreciate the opportunity to, to hear about it. So thank you.
0: Well, I, I think I learned a lot. And it's always really helpful to, to talk to somebody who's immersed in this space as well. So thank you so much, Chris, for your insights as well.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. To stay in the loop about new episodes and to be eligible for my periodic book bundle giveaways, sign up for the Breakdown newsletter at chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway. So what's this giveaway? Every few months, I bundle together three or four influential books, often written or recommended by guests from the show, and I give them away to a few lucky listeners. I'll include a signed copy of Meltdown, and because I'm friends with many of my fellow authors, I try to get their books signed as well, so you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Go to chrisclearfield.com slash giveaway to get on the list. Finally, join your fellow listeners. Subscribe to the show and share it with your friends. And if you love the show, give us a five-star rating in your favorite podcast app. Even one extra review helps us get an edge on the algorithm so more people can find us. And before we roll the credits, remember, if you're a business owner ready to transform your business and your life, find out more about my approach to coaching and sign up for a free intro session at chrisclearfield.com slash make the leap. That's all one word make the leap. The breakdown with Chris Clearfield is a team effort. The inimitable Ray Navant is our assistant producer and makes everything run smoothly. Gabe Turner and Claire Skinner help make the amazing content here and on my newsletter, available at chrisclearfield.com slash the breakdown. Laura Stack is our editor, and our theme was composed by the creative team at Spiky Blimp. Thanks so much for listening, and be well. Until our next breakdown.